It's good to be with you. We're taking a break this week from our series in Matthew to consider an important topic. And uh, to begin, I want to read a scripture. So we'll be hearing God's voice at the outset of a sermon. The scripture is Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. If you're using uh, the Bible that was provided for you in the PRAC, it's on page 6. So you can turn there. And though it's a short reading, still because it is God's Word and we want to show our reverence and respect to God, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Genesis 9, 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Please be seated as we pray. Father, we are dealing today with an issue that is of contemporary relevance and yet that your word speaks to with such clarity. We want to think like you. We want our thoughts to be shaped by you. Not by the prevailing winds of culture or even our own intuition. So I pray that you would give us your mind by your spirit. That you would work amongst us today. Even as we examine this important topic. In Christ's name, amen. On February 6th of this year. Our Supreme Court struck down a ban on physician-assisted suicide. In so doing, they opened the gate for Canada to become the ninth nation out of all the nations of the world to adopt or allow for the practice of physician-assisted suicide, and we became the first Commonwealth nation to do so. It was a 9-0 decision. For those who don't know, physician-assisted suicide, or it's sometimes called euthanasia, is the practice where a physician provides, um, either, either in providing himself or administering it, lethal medication that will kill a patient. It's different than removing life support. Removing life support is something that's keeping you alive, taking that away, and so that nature runs its course. That's something that Christians for a long time have allowed and our legal system allows. This is actually administering lethal medication. And as far as I can tell, the Supreme Court has said uh, there's only two criteria that must be met for someone to be able to choose to end their own life. One is that the suffering must be intolerable, and two, the condition must be incurable. Now, sometimes I think the, the logic behind physician-assisted suicide m- makes some sense. So you're diagnosed with this brutal cancer that's just going to ravage you. You're definitely going to die from it. Death is just maybe a few months away, and you're looking at this awful battle in front of you. And you say, why not just end it now and relieve a little bit of that suffering that's inevitably going to come? 
Yet though that logic can be a bit compelling, it kind of intuitively, we get it. As Christians, we know that suicide is wrong. And so I felt like given that kind of tension between what, what can sometimes be a little bit compelling, like there's something gripping about that. There's something convincing about that. And what we know, and, and yet we know it's wrong, that tension is something we need to explore. And so even just in the week after that ruling by the Supreme Court, I determined I thought it would be good for us as a church to just dig a little deeper into what the Bible says about physician-assisted suicide or euthanasia. So that's what we're doing today. And I want to begin by stating clearly that that suicide, according to the Bible, is unequivocally wrong. This has been the undisputed position of the church for 2,000 years. First, it's clear because what I read here in Genesis 9-6 That it is not for man to take the life of man. The Bible teaches that mankind is uniquely created in the image of God. And because we are created in the image of God, it is not ours to take life. This command is not only here in Genesis 9-6. It's repeated as the sixth of ten commandments given in Exodus 20. We're not to take life. And then throughout the scriptures, in Old and New Testament, it's one of the the clear, undisputed teachings of scripture that we do not take life. Now, even in our passage, it talks about perhaps the idea of capital punishment for someone who has taken life. Or when there's, uh, if you you get into some of the other passages of scripture, maybe if there's a war and and somebody, some some nation is rising up trying to destroy people, that there's, there's a rightness in taking, you know, taking the course of just war. We're not going to debate those issues right now. Christians have differed on those. But aside from those two exceptions, the scripture is very clear that we do not take life. The scriptures are also clear that we are to protect the most vulnerable amongst us. There's a a theme throughout scripture. Those who are needy, the, the poor, the refugee, the widow, the elderly, the orphan, the sick deserve our particular care and our particular protection. Well, somebody who's in a position where, for whatever reason, they're considering suicide is in a place of great brokenness and need. And in no time is our care more important and our protection of them more important. And so you take these two teachings and put them together and the Bible is just lucid all the way throughout. Un- you can't debate it, what the Bible teaches. It is wrong to take your life, whether it's through physician-assisted suicide or not. It's not a gray issue. It's black and white. So any Christian can agree. Anyone who believes the Bible can agree. It's wrong. And yet for many of us, there's this disconnect between what we know to be true and what we sense. So let's be like, if I had to go and explain to someone why it was wrong 
why euthanasia is wrong, I, I wouldn't be able to do it. I, I, I feel uncomfortable having that conversation. I, I don't have any... I just say, well, it's wrong to take your life. Well, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a hard debate. And I think there's a reason for the disconnect kind of between what we intuitively sense and what we know to be true. And it has to do with the fact that in any issue in our day, there's kind of an above-ground presenting issue. But behind that above-ground presenting issue, there have been all sorts of monumental and deep seismic-type shifts underneath in, in, in the philosophical underpinnings that support how our culture thinks and makes decisions. And so while we look at this presenting issue, the, the above-ground issue of euthanasia, and we can say, yes, that's wrong. We fail to see all the movement under the surface. In fact, oftentimes we embrace some of those things that are more subtle and yet deeper and more profound movements in our culture. We've drunk that water. And so there's an intuitive sense that it makes sense, even though we know the presenting issue is wrong. Take, Take, for example, the issue of abortion. Christians believe that abortion is wrong. That's the above ground issue. We look at that and we say it's wrong. And yet... There have been these cultural shifts, these seismic moves, philosophical underpinnings that have allowed culture to move to a place where it embraces abortion. One of those underpinnings is the idea that we need to get rid of the differences between male and female. And so uh, if, if for a woman, pregnancy is going to affect my career, an unwanted pregnancy can affect my career, it can affect my, uh, my sexual choices, then we need to do something to address this unwanted pregnancy in women. And so abortion is the answer to that. So there's these underground currents of trying to obliterate the differences between male and female that has a presenting issue of abortion. See what I mean by above ground and, and deeper issues? I think sometimes we as Christians, we, we uh, to use an image, we swallow the fish but refuse to swallow the tail. The, the underground, undercurrent stuff, we swallow that, but then that presenting, that above ground issue, that's where we say, oh, the Bible's clear on that. I'm going to draw the line there. And what I want to do today in this sermon is look at two of the the primary philosophical underpinnings that support euthanasia, these deeper cultural shifts, and look at them and then see what the Bible has to say with them so that we can be protected not only from the tail, but from the fish itself. So the first philosophical underpinning that supports euthanasia that I want to address is a deficient view of suffering. Our culture today sees no inherent value in suffering. What we live for is that whatever I want, I can have. The the good life for us is to have a lot of money, a lot of leisure time, to be able to have sex when I want it, to have the respect of those around me, to have companionship, to have my health to have the fitness and the looks of a 26-year-old perpetually. That's what I want. And so when suffering comes along, it robs me of those things. And so then I look at suffering and say, it's either something that I have to endure because when I get to the other side of it, I might have those things again. 
or it's something I bear with because I can hold on to a few of those things while I'm going through the suffering. But suffering itself has no value. But when you look at what the Bible says about suffering, you find something very different. It does root the suffering in this world in Adam's original rebellion. So it's part of the brokenness of this world. And it holds out the hope of an eternal kingdom where there is no suffering. And yet it teaches that in this world, God is able to take the suffering of this world, the pain that you and I go through, and use it for good. So when there is no God, suffering is purposeless. And in some cases, then, the logic would be it's better to die than to suffer. But when there is a God, suffering always has a purpose. God is always working something good, even through our hardship. There was a man of another era who was a great man of God, very devout, just a a good man. He had a loving wife, ten children, and was a very successful businessman. Then, in one day, because of some criminal activity and a natural calamity, all ten of his children died, and he lost all of his wealth. And shortly after that, his body broke out in an incurable skin disease where sores were festering all over his body. His wife said to him, curse God and die. But he refused. He pressed on. He said, I'm going to wrestle with God. What's going on? What are you doing here? But he pressed on. His story is actually told to us in the Bible in a book called Job. And it's the story of the man Job. Job goes through his whole life according to the Bible and he never knows the purposes for his suffering. God never tells him. But God does tell us on the pages of Scripture what was going on. You see, Satan was mocking God. He was saying, the only reason people follow you is because their life will be so nice if they follow you. And God says, okay, if that's what you think, Satan, I'm going to prove you wrong. I'm going to shut up your mocking. And what he allows Satan to do to Job is actually this beautiful cosmic display that shuts the mouth of Satan. Job never knew it. That God had these cosmic purposes for what he was doing. You see, the Bible says over and over again that our suffering has purpose. Job's isn't the only story like that. You have Joseph who was sold by his brothers into slavery. And God used that act To save the people of Israel from dying in a famine. 
where Jesus encounters a little boy who, who was blind from birth. And he says, God did this so that as I heal him, God's power would be displayed in this boy. Or in, in the story of our faith, the story of the Bible, God's son is wrongly accused and forced to die a brutal death hanging by crucifixion on a Roman cross. And yet God used that so that our sins could be atoned for. That we could be redeemed, bought back from our slavery to our sin and made right with God. In Genesis 50, it says, man intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. In Romans 8, it says, for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, God works all things for good. In James chapter 1, it says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of various kinds. And then it goes on to say the good that God is working through those trials. You see, the Bible says to you, your cancer is not without a purpose. It can be used of God. That relational strife you're going through right now is not without a purpose. It can be used of God. As you experience your body aging and breaking down and you bear with the infirmity of that, God says it's not without a purpose. It can be used of God. And the Bible says then, If you have a terminal illness, it is not without a purpose. It can be used of God. That's exactly what Kara Trippets believed. Kara was a pastor's wife and the mother of four young children when she received the diagnosis that the cancer she had was going to end her life. She thought long and hard about it. And she wrote that for those who trust Jesus, your life matters, your story matters, and then she says, your suffering matters. But why? I mean, what, is this, what is this last few months of her life supposed to do? And she thought long and hard about what God could be doing. I like what she wrote. She said perhaps, quote, One day my daughter will be made beautiful in her living because she witnessed my dying. You see... When God looks at us, 
His first concerns aren't that we have money and have health. He's concerned about deeper things. About our interconnectedness with one another. About our character. About who we are as people. And most of all, about our relationship with him. And so he allows suffering in this world because of the things it does here on earth and the things it does to prepare us for eternity. God will not remove us from this earth then until his purposes for us are done. And whatever situation we're in, wherever we're at, God has a purpose for us there. Or he would have removed us and taken us home. So if you are confined to a wheelchair, like Johnny Erickson Tata, he still has work for you to do. If you're confined to a sick bed, like Kara Trippett's was, he still has work for you to do. If you're shut in and can't get out, and feel like you're no longer useful to the kingdom of God. It's not true. God has a purpose for you. That's why you're still here on this earth. And if you're wandering around a nursing home, not even aware of what's going on around you, God still has purposes for you. It might be to remind the rest of us about the frailty of our own bodies and our minds and to remind us that we need God, that we're like grass here today, gone tomorrow. It might be that in our, those who love us, showing their care to us in our frailty, they're getting a little taste of the kind of love God has for them. But God has purposes in it. And so we need to be careful when we say things like, I'd rather die than end my life like that. Or, I'd rather this baby die than to have to go through life with this disability. Because when we say things like that, we're swallowing the fish. We're believing the lies our culture is telling us. The prevailing culture says there is no God, and suffering therefore has no purpose. So you either endure it to get to the finish line, or you avoid it altogether, perhaps even by ending your own life. But the Bible says there is a God, and therefore suffering does have a purpose. And until He calls us home. We continue with hope, with courage, with faith, with love. So there's a deficient view of suffering, philosophical underpinning. But here's the medical reality. Those with terminal illnesses rarely have to suffer. 
in today's modern medical situation, most who are the vast majority of people who have some sort of terminal illness can receive the kind of care and medicine so they don't suffer at the end of their life. And so the issue really behind, I'd say even the bigger philosophical underpinning that is, is pushing this euthanasia movement is that people, it's not the fear of suffering. It's the fear of a loss of control. Or to put it differently, people who have gone through life thinking of themselves as the God of their own life do not want to be unseated as God. There was a, uh, an editorialist in The New Yorker who talked about euthanasia and she said, it is a humanist solution to a humanist dilemma. Humanism is is a religion that removes God and places me at the center of my life and world. So I am the captain of my own ship, the master of my own destiny, right? I am the sovereign in my life, not God. Well, what is death? What is, what, is a, what is suffering? It is a reminder that I am not God. That for all my wisdom and all my brilliance and all my strength and all my fight, I actually am pretty weak. And I don't have much. And so when that comes and death is facing me, in my last act to say, no, I actually am king of my own fate, I will be the one to determine when I die and nobody else. It's an act that says I refuse to be unseated as God. And of course, if there is no God, well, life is just what I make of it. And so if... If it's not what I want it to be anymore, if not it's what I've determined I want for my life, then sure, end my life. Give me the lethal injection. If there is a God, and it is His to give life and take it, then all of life matters. But if there is no God and life life is nothing more than my short-lived pursuit of my own personal happiness, then life ceases to matter when the prospect of my own happiness is lost. See the irony there? The bigger God is, the more valuable life becomes, The bigger man is, the less valuable life becomes. I talked about Job. I told you that Job never found out why he was suffering, but God did remind him of this in a very gracious and loving way, but in a very clear way. He reminded him how strong and mighty and wise he is, and how small and unwise. And frail Job was. 
to use the imagery of Romans 9. We're, po- we're pottery that God is forming. And we believe there's a God that's shaping and molding me and using whatever's happening, this pressure here, this fire here, to shape me into what he wants me to be. There's meaning in life. But, but if I'm making myself, I, if I'm shaping myself and molding myself, if I'm my own potter, then when things start to get out of control or I start to lose what I want or I'm grasping, well, there's no more reason for this. Fold it up, fold it up close up the shop. The so-called right to die movement is actually based on a deeper shift that removes God from the equation. A humanist philosophy that in many ways I think we as Christians imbibe, but that is antithetical to the teachings of Scripture. So these are the two big views that I think are are the cultural shifts, right? A, A deficient view of suffering and an unseating of God that we need to be aware of and we can think biblically about. But before I close, I want to just touch briefly on two two questions that might remain in your mind about euthanasia. The first is, why, why is it humane, if there's an animal that's suffering, to go ahead and end his life or that animal's life? And yet it wouldn't be... Do- to do so with a person. We all get that that's the right thing to do with an animal. Well, there's a physician and philosopher and bioethicist named Leon Cass, and he wrote this, and I think it's a really good answer to that question. He wrote, It's precisely because animals are not human that we must treat them merely humanely. We put dumb animals to sleep because they do not know they are dying. Because they can make nothing of their misery or mortality. And therefore, because they cannot live deliberately, i.e. humanly, in the face of their own suffering or dying. They cannot live out a fitting end. On the contrary, he says, humanity is owed humanity, not humaneness. Humanity is owed the bolstering of the human, even or especially in its dying moments, in resistance to the temptations to ignore its presence in the sight of suffering. Animals don't know what's happening. They're not aware of what God is doing. And so it's a very different experience for them. They don't understand their suffering. Whereas a human, because they're human, is in a different category than an animal. The other question I wanted to briefly address is this idea of, is it right for us to deny another person their freedom? 
That is, hey, we have a religious conviction that says there's a God and we shouldn't end life. But those people might not share those convictions. And so why, is, why would it be right for us to impose that on them? I mean, can't we just say, okay, we as Christians won't choose that, but we'll let them choose that because we want to give them their freedom. Just imagine for a minute that you're in your 80s and the doctor comes in and says, you just have maybe a year left to live and the disease you have is going to mean that you become less and less uh, able to take care of yourself. You're going to be dependent on others. You're going to need a lot of extra medical care to make sure that you're comfortable and you're able to go through this. So there's going to be cost to you. Now, you do have the option, if you'd like, to receive a lethal injection or lethal medication. But that is your choice. It's up to you. Now, as an 80-year-old, you go back to your spouse of 60-plus years. And you have this question. Now, you look at your spouse and you say, what do you want? And what's your spouse supposed to say? Of course, they're going to say, keep living. But you just notice that facial expression. Now you've got questions in your mind. Do they really want me around? And do they want to have to do, do all this for me? Then you gather your children around with their busy lives you know, it'll, it'll take a, a chunk of your money and, and, and the savings that you've put aside that'll go to your spouse and to your children someday. And you have the conversation with them. Again, what are they going to say? Oh, oh sure, it's, it's your decision. You do what you want. But we want you to live, except for maybe one son who says, Dad, I know this could be hard, but if you want to die, that's all right. Now all of a sudden, your thoughts are going, why did he say that? Is it something... You're, the end of your life, what are you thinking about? What your son thinks of you and why he said that comment. And here you are, and you're in a situation where, in a sense, the selfless thing to do is to take the lethal injection. Because it's only a benefit to you to stay alive, right? To have your loved ones around you, a little more time with them. It's, it's all, at least, I'm not saying this is true, but this is how you're going to be inclined to think. That I'm a burden to others. That's many, many of the oldest, oldest people and the most uh, infirmed amongst us. That's their big concern. I'm a burden to others now. And they don't like being a burden to others. And so that's what you're thinking. I don't want to be a burden to others. And so now you're left to think, am I going to do the, in your own mind, the selfish thing and keep living? Or will I... Keep going. Do you see what it's doing to you psychologically? Actually, we are not giving people freedom. We are making, we're putting them under an obligation when we give them this choice. And there might be a small select few who, because of their worldview, their suffering is, is diminished because of the right to die. But in exchange for that, we are giving everybody else this great added burden at the end of their life. Things that they should not have to be wrestle, wrestling with. Interactions, interpersonal interactions they should not have to be experiencing. 
So we're causing greater pain and turmoil and psychological trauma at the end of life for so many for the sake of these few who demand their right to life, a right to die. just want to address those two questions because I think it helps kind of bring all of what I'm saying together. But I want to end the sermon. I want to close the sermon by pointing us again to the cross. In just a few minutes, we're going to be taking of the table, which Jesus gave us as a reminder of his body shed for us and his blood given for us, the cross. Nowhere besides the cross do we see more vividly the example of how something that is evil, a suffering, can be used for such great good. It is the paradigm for us. God took the death of Christ, which he actually sovereignly ordained to bring about the forgiveness of our sins, the redemption of all who would put their faith in Jesus. And so, we ought not flee suffering. We ought not be people who say, oh, that's something to avoid or just survive. And so, we ought not be people who say, I am the captain of my own fate. Instead, we should be people of the cross. We should be people who bow our knees to King Jesus, who rules our life. We should be people who know that this king can take evil and work it for good. Let us not be people of the world who swallow the fish while just saying, oh, nope, that tale's wrong. Let us be people of the cross. People of of the table. People who understand the centrality of what Christ did for all of our thinking. Let us pray. Father, these are heavy things to think about. And yet, when we think of you on the throne working good from our hardship, there is hope and it gives us courage. God, there may be few here who are facing end-of-life decisions. But there are many here who are reeling from the evils of this world, who are suffering in one way or another. And may, may this table be a reminder to them and to all of us to not think like the world on these matters. To not have a deficient view of suffering to not displace you as God. May we be people who allow the cross to shape all of our thinking. People of the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.